Anyway, it's good to see you guys this morning. If you are visiting, my name's Kyle, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, just want to say thank you for being here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah's after a little book called Obadiah, and before another little book called Micah, and it is its own little book. So uh, if you flip too quickly, you'll probably pass it, but it's there, I promise. Uh, Jonah chapter 2 is kind of where we'll start today. We'll end up in Jonah chapter 4 before we finish. But before we get into all that, I I do want to kind of just offer a a hearty, uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, So whether or not, as as Jasper mentioned earlier, whether or not you are a a father or not is is kind of insignificant. And then, uh, but whether or not you are a father uh, and this is a good day for you or not, is something that kind of matters to my heart. So when I say that, maybe uh, for a lot of reasons, Father's Day can be difficult, but not just for men, for ladies also. Uh, This could be a time of of year where you kind of recognize uh, a prodigal child. Uh, It could be a time where you're thinking about a deceased father and all that he meant or didn't mean to you. And it could be about a strained relationship even for you. So... Uh, There's a lot of different things that Father's Day can mean for so many of us, and what I hope to offer you today is encouragement, Uh, not with the sermon, but just right now. And so um, there is for you, men, an all-sufficient grace that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to be with you, and that the Father has said, our Heavenly Father has said, that He is a Father to the fatherless. And so the Father is with us. He's teaching us. He's leading us. Um, the, the Lord is not, has not left us in all things. Rather, He is with us in all things. And so, men, I, I strongly encourage you today to lean into that, to lean into Christ this morning, to, to follow Him with all of your heart, whatever your situation may be. And so, um, one thing I know about, about the men of this church and, and kind of our, our path with the Lord is that as we're seeking the Lord, as we're leading from the strength of Christ and not from the strength of our own, our own weakness, right, or not from the weakness of our own flesh, rather, uh, this church will be a better place. It's, it's a better place as we all together submitting to one another and submitting to the Lord. And so I do encourage, encourage that. And so uh, I'll kick off Jonah uh, week three of Jonah here in just a second. But right now, I just would like if you're, uh, again, just kind of a man in here, we do believe that you contribute to um, the fatherhood of all the saints in in ways that you're leading and loving and serving. And so would you just stand to your feet this morning and we'll recognize you. But I do want to pray for you before you sit back down. So men, would you stand? I know you enjoy this so much. You're welcome. And uh Anyway, y'all give them a, a round of applause again. Amen. Um, it's, it's an honor to know you, to serve with you, uh, and to watch you um, love the people of this place and your families. And so let me just pray for you uh, that the Lord would be strength for you in all that you do. Heavenly Father, we, we love you, and we are grateful uh, to be in your presence with one another. Father, in this moment, I want to honor of uh, the men of this place. Uh, Lord, so many of them are, uh, are recognized here and kind of represent just different walks of life and different stages of life on uh, doing different things in life. But one thing we have in common is Jesus Christ. 
And because of him, uh, we are hopefully, hopefully on the trajectory to being uh, godly men in whatever area of, of or whatever life we have. And so, uh, Father, in all the areas, be it that we are fathers or we are husbands or we are single men or we are employees and, and workmen in the workforce and so many other things, friends and Christian brothers. Father, would you strengthen us for the work of the ministry that you've given us, that whatever our places in life may be, help us to represent Jesus in all that we say and do. Well, Father, I pray that you strengthen these men for that work. It is a, it is a tiresome work. We grow weary at times. And so, Father, we do ask for you to help us to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit that we would continue to fight the good fight, that we would finish the race well. Father, we love you, and we thank you for being a father to us, for teaching us how to be that to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. So um, I want to continue with Jonah 3, and uh, or the kind of week 3 of Jonah, I guess. And uh, Today what we're going to discuss is kind of the final parallel episodes. And so there'll be one more sermon. We're going to look at the end of chapter four uh, next week and just kind of the lesson there that God has kind of for the whole book and what we can learn from that. Uh, But this week tees it up really well. This week kind of gets at the heart of what we'll be diving into a little deeper next week. And so uh, today we're going to look at Jonah's grateful prayer in chapter two. And so Jonah, he, he prays this prayer of gratitude as he rests in the belly of the fish and he's remembering that in chapter 2. He writes it down for us. And so we get, to, we get to kind of see what led to that moment. We get to see his prayer in that moment. Uh, but then in chapter 4, Jonah prays kind of a completely opposite prayer. He prays an angry prayer. He's mad at God for what he did uh, in Nineveh, that he relented. And so we'll get to look at uh, just the anger that's there and kind of the um, uh, maybe even the silliness of such anger. But I think it's anger that we can identify with. I think it's anger that we feel sometimes. And so I think the challenge of the book of Jonah is that that's going to rest on us too. That, that, um, that compassion that we see from the Lord, that love that we see from the Lord is going to rest on us and it's going to challenge us and, and us. And so that's what I hope to do with our time today. I think that Jonah's prayers, both the, the grateful prayer and the angry prayer, revealing this massive uh, character attribute of God. And, and so anytime we have an opportunity to look into God's Word and we get to see a little bit about who God is, that's a good day. Like, that's a good time. And so, um, so I think what Jonah reveals for us is that our God is steadfast in His love. And so if you're taking notes, I think that's available for you to write something down there at the top. Our God is steadfast in His love. Now, I think that that has two implications as we see it in Jonah, uh, two very broad implications that I think we can needle down a little bit and learn some things from. But the first is this, God's steadfast love transforms our hearts. God's steadfast love transforms our hearts. So let me just kind of read the narrative of where we're at. We're going to start really in Jonah 1.17, just kind of as a recap. It says this, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so now Jonah's going to kind of tell the story of this. He's going to remember this, and we're going to see that he prays while he's in the belly of this fish. That feedback may be coming from the monitor, Corey. I'm not sure. Let me read this to you. 
Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And yet I shall look again. Oh, sorry. Uh, let me stop for just a second. One and two again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Let's just stop there for a second. These, these verses are a summary of Jonah's uh, psalm. This, is, this reads like a psalm, and in fact, he quotes many different psalms throughout this prayer. Uh, but he cries out to the Lord. He's summing this up. I cried out to the Lord, and in my distress... And the Lord answered me in my distress. He answered my prayer. Uh, he mentions these statements, which I found uh, intriguing. He says, uh, we, well, we see that the text says, then Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish. And then we read that I called and he answered me. And so what it's showing us is that Jonah is recalling of the events that led to the fish swallowing him from the belly of the fish. So a lot of us think the story of, of Jonah and he's cast into the sea and the whale swallows him up. We think that was immediate. But what Jonah's recalling here is that that wasn't immediate, that there was a time spent, I don't know how long, but there was time spent drowning. There was time spent falling to the bottom of the sea. There was time spent uh, having seaweed wrapped around your head, as we're going to see here in a minute. And, and before the fish comes in, and saves him. And so uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but Jonah 2, 3 through 4 says this. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. How many of you know that sounds like Psalm 42, right? Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah's describing really in vivid detail what he experienced after being hurled into the sea by the sailors. So, and, and so he's attributing, he says, you cast me into the deeps. How many know it was the sailors who did it? But Jonah's acknowledging that God did it. He acted sovereignly through the sailors, that it was your waves, your billows that were crashing over me, that were pouring in over me. That was your storm that you caused. And all of this was your doing. Everything that he was experiencing in that moment was from the Lord. He also recalls the language there of Psalm 42, again, as he says, all your waves, all your billows are passing over me. And what Jonah recognizes in this moment is that he is, has been driven away from God, sure, but it's by his own doing. He was the one who fled, right? He was the one who left and flew to, uh, to Tarshish that he may not have to go to Nineveh, thinking he could run from the Lord. But in this moment, as he finds himself sinking to the bottom of the sea, he begins to remember the Lord. He's holding out hope that he will again worship in the temple. And, and as the waves and the bills are passing over Jonah, it's ironic that he is mourning the loss of God's presence, the very presence which he sought so hard to run from. In that moment, he misses the Lord. In that moment, he misses temple worship. He longs to be with the Lord. He longs to follow the Lord again. And yet, he sinks further. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. 
The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So Jonah's reached the bottom of the sea from all accounts. Seaweeds wrapped around his head. The, the, the foundations or the roots of the mountains are around him. He's describing his near-death experience as Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. And he's saying that he's there and that its bars were almost locked on him. And yet, when it seemed as though he would die there, we read uh, 6 part B, and it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Yuck. It says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Salvation belongs to you. So Jonah is recognizing that he had done nothing to deserve the rescue of God in these moments. Yet God rescues him anyway. Jonah is acknowledging that this salvation was from the Lord. He is saying that salvation was by grace. That, that the Lord looked on him with grace and mercy and brought him up out of the pit. And in verses 8-9, through nine, what we see is that Jonah's kind of remembering his interaction with uh, those pagan sailors, right? The ones who made these... Um, who, who tried to appeal to their gods, to idols, to save them, and it didn't work. And then once they encountered God, that's when they began to offer these sacrifices and make vows to the Lord, to commit themselves to Him, to worship Him. And so when Jonah says in, in verse 8 there, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, he's recalling those vain efforts. He's thinking about how the sailors acted in vain, that there's nothing about an idol that can save us. It's, it's not by worshiping false gods that, that anyone will be saved. It's only by the hand of God that people will be saved. It's only by submitting ourselves to the Lord that we will be saved. And I think we should read those words, verse 8, with kind of an understanding of what this means for our lives today. We may think, well, I don't worship other gods. But certainly we worship idols from time to time. Certainly we're putting things in the place of God in our lives. For me as a father, sometimes it's I'm putting my children in the place of God in my life. That I, I love them and value them so much that it becomes idol worship almost. For, for other times in my life, sometimes it's Patricia, right? It's, it's my wife. It's, it's engaging with her in a way is just more... Um, tactile, if you will. It feels more real sometimes. And so I'll put my relationship with Patricia above the Lord at times. But, but then I, I don't even want to admit all the times I put really stupid stuff in front of the Lord, like golf and hobbies and other things, that they became more important to me, or sports. There's so many different things that I love in life, gifts of God's grace for my life, that it's easy to make those, those, those good God things, ultimate things that become idols in our life. And so they're not wrong in and of themselves. They're wrong when I place an inappropriate value on them. And the same is true for your life. 
Matt Smethurst, uh, pastor, uh, pointed this out about Jonah and what Jonah's really saying here. Jonah is saying, he says, that idols do not die for your sins. They leave that to you. It's really profound. When I read that this week, I, I, I thought, man, that's, that's amazing to think of it that way, that idols do not die for your sins. They leave that to you. But there is one. There is one who did die for our sins. And so if you're going to give yourself over to idols, then what Jonah is after here is that you're forsaking your hope of God's steadfast love. That there's not a hope there for you to experience the steadfast love of God as you continue to worship idols. So Jonah becomes really like the sailors here. They kind of led in the way of this, right? They, they, when they encountered God, they did the same thing that Jonah does. He sacrifices with thanksgiving to the Lord, and he makes a vow to him that he will keep, he says. And this is most assuredly Jonah's moment. It's not super clear to us, but this is his moment of repentance. This is where he's, he's coming back to the Lord. He's confessing that, hey, I've done something wrong here. I'm going to make these sacrifices. I'm going to make these vows. I'm going to follow you. Salvation is from the Lord, he declares. He's declaring that because he's noticing God's work for him. And we're tempted to read the story of Jonah. We're tempted to see the fish in the story as a tool for God's judgment. But that's clearly not the case here. The, the fish was not a, a tool for God's judgment. The fish is a tool for God's deliverance. God is using the fish to deliver Jonah. And as Jonah praises God for saving him, making sacrifices and vows to the Lord, God speaks to the fish and He vomits Jonah out onto dry land. And you and I need to see that in that moment, what we're recognizing is that God's steadfast love has transformed Jonah's heart. And in the same way, God's steadfast love transforms our hearts. Jonah cried out when, when all hope seemed lost. His, his life was over as far as he thought. Yet this is often the way that the Lord appeals to His children, that the Lord deals with His children. It is in those despairing moments, those moments where we think that all is lost, and those moments where we're throwing up our hands in confusion or doubt or just, I give up. It's not worth it anymore. It's in those moments of hopelessness that God proves Himself and does His best work in us. It's in those moments that He transforms our hearts. All throughout the Bible, we see the truth that life comes not by avoiding death, but through death. And as we begin to die to ourselves, we begin to come alive in Christ. All throughout the Bible, we see that strength does not come despite weakness. Strength comes in weakness. All throughout the Bible, we see that comfort comes not by eliminating all affliction, but through all affliction. And the supreme instance of this is Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible says of him in 2 Corinthians 13 that he was crucified in weakness, but that he lives now by the power of God. Jonah learns here, through this transforming power of God's steadfast love, that life comes when we die to ourselves. When we surrender ourselves to the Lord, when we give up our running, our vain striving, our vain idols, that's when life comes. And so he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Now, God's epic work in Jonah's life, as we see it here, is full of hope. But it's not just full of hope for those who are seeking God. It's full of hope for those who, like Jonah, have kind of determined that they're going to run from the Lord at all costs. That I I don't want to seek the Lord. I don't want to follow the Lord. That we can see that Jonah's encounter with the God who is steadfast in love brings us great hope. That that we too can be saved from our vain running and, and, and striving. Many people believe that God opens like a door to salvation and then He kind of steps back. That He, that he leaves it up to us to decide if we want to come in. But, but if God made salvation possible and, and didn't cause salvation in your life, He just made it possible, then the Christian life would be about you. It, it would be about your believing. It would be about your serving, your following, your choices for a good life. But, but in Jonah's case, what we see is that as he's imprisoned in the fish's belly, God was claiming someone who was quite incapable of performing any redeeming work to compensate for his sin. He, he's totally incapable. That, that God was not relying on Jonah to save Jonah. Praise God. That the message remains for you and, and for me today is that if you have trusted God for salvation through Jesus Christ, and He has done more than simply make salvation available to you, He has saved you. You are His. You've been given a new heart. He's placed His Holy Spirit in you. You now live not by the flesh alone, but by the Spirit also. And now you can make choices to serve the Lord. But it's through the work that God has done in us. Ephesians 2, 1-9, through 9, a, a post-Jesus text, tells us this. It says, And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he's talking about Satan, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The words there, like the rest of mankind, mean that no one is able to pull themselves up out of death. Spiritual death. And so that was all of us. That's all of us before the Lord. If you look back at your life before Christ, it's marked by spiritual death. A a following your own passions, living according to your own flesh, carrying out the desires of your body, your mind. A a child of wrath. And then in verse 4, it says, but God. It doesn't say, but Kyle, or or, but Steve, or but Patricia, or but God. But God, being rich, and mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He didn't, he's not waiting until you're, you're, you're all good. You figured out how to step into church and kind of clean your life up a little bit. He's saying, even when you were dead in your trespasses, that God was rich in mercy and had great love toward you, and that even while you were dead, He made you alive together with Christ. And He makes this beautiful Beautiful statement. By grace, you have been saved. It's an unmerited favor with the Lord. It's not earned. It's undeserved grace. 
That's what grace is. And it says that He raised us up with Him, that He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that's when we pass from this life into the next, we can see the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, He goes on to say again, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. In case any of us want to say, no, 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 I did it. This is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It's, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Again, if your salvation was of you, it would be about you. You would have the right to say, I did it. I stepped through the door of salvation that the Lord had opened to me. Look how great I am. And when we fail to acknowledge God's sovereignty in saving us, what we're saying is that I too am a bit sovereign in some ways. That I too hold the power to save myself. Let us not be deceived. We're as helpless as Jonah at the bottom of that sea. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Without God's work to transform our hearts, they will not be transformed. It's impossible. This is why the prophecy in Ezekiel is so profound for Israel when he tells them, I will take that heart of stone that's inside of you and I will yank it out and I will put in there a heart of flesh. How many of you can rip a heart of stone out of your life and put in a heart of flesh? None of us have that power. I'm going to get to why this is so profound, but we had to land here for a second. You may be asking, what does this have to do with Jonah? It says, therefore, so, therefore, what Jonah is now doing in the belly of this fish is he's thinking about what lies behind that moment he sits in. Namely, the sovereignty of God at work in his life. The, the raging sea the sailors tossing him into the waters, the, the, the fish saving him. And I think that it should cause us to reflect what lies behind our faith. Even before the creation of the world, we were a part of God's plan. And God, we know from the Scriptures, Psalm 139, Ephesians 1, and others testify that God set His love on us and formed His plans for us before we were born. And so when Jesus came into the world, He came to save real people with real names and real faces. He knew exactly who they were. If we are in Christ, we are among those people. The sins that He carried to the cross, they're our sins. The wrath He endured was meant for us. And God did all of this before we were, before we were born, but it doesn't end there. He brought salvation to us also, opening our eyes to see our sin, drawing our hearts to find hope in Jesus. What do you say He opened our eyes to see sin? Well, Jesus, in His interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him by night because he's a Pharisee and he doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus in a way that's kind of inquiring about who Christ is and these things he's saying. And in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals that 
You must be born again. I've talked about it before, how incredibly offensive that would be. If someone walked into the room after Patricia had just given birth to one of our kids, held our baby and said, ah, he needs to be born again. She needs to be born again. Y'all stick him back in there. He's not ready. That's offensive, right? And essentially what Jesus is doing to Nicodemus is he's kind of holding him there like a little baby and saying, ah, you gotta, you gotta redo this. This, this isn't good enough for salvation. And Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is Jesus' interaction with every single one of us. John 3.16, as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he reveals that God so loved the world that he sent me to die for your sins, right? That through faith in me, you can have eternal life, that you won't have to perish. But right after that, Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. But he came bringing this light. And the light is offensive to us. And so there will be some of us who are guilty of rejecting the light, and there will be others who are made righteous because we believed in the light. So when Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus asks, well, how in the world is that possible? And Jesus reveals in that moment that it's a work of the Spirit of God. And he says that the Spirit blows wherever it wishes, and no one knows from where it comes or where it is going. So he's revealing to Nicodemus that this is a work that's outside of what you can do. It's a work that's going to take place in you first. Now the beautiful thing about Nicodemus is we saw him again at the end of John, right? If you remember that, he's one of the ones who comes to take Jesus off the cross and to give him a proper burial. His encounter with Christ led Nicodemus to saving faith, no doubt. This is what Christ does in all of us. He transforms our hearts. His steadfast love transforms us. Now, each one of you has a unique story of how this has happened in your life. The time, the place, the people who were involved uh, may vary, right? They're going to look different from person to person. But behind each story, however simple is the same amazing miracle of God's grace. That God has saved you. Now, once you see that God has come after you and that He's taken hold of you the time, um, and, and that He's transformed you by His steadfast love, it will open a new sense of worship in you. It opens a new sense of wonder in you. It opens a new awareness of His love in you. And it gives you this new hope in what God can do for others. How He saves other people. Not only does God's steadfast love transform our hearts, God's steadfast love enlarges our hearts. So if you're taking notes, that's my second and final point. So, so with a heart that has been transformed, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He warns them of their coming destruction with this really amazing one-sentence sermon. It's not really amazing. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, see you guys later. I mean, he has no interest in seeing Nineveh repent. None. So if you're kind of first coming to the series with us, Nineveh, uh, they were Assyrians, and Assyrians were uh, really awful people. They were enemies of Israel. And so Jonah is a prophet to Israel, had been his whole life, and then in this moment, God's asking him to take a message to people he can't stand. 
And so he didn't want to go, so he fled. You know, and the whole story kind of catches you up. And then he finally goes. And when he does, he's still just kind of in that mode of, I don't care about these people. But amazingly, as is the hope of all preachers, God takes a really bad word and uses it for His glory, right? You're not supposed to amen that. I'm just kidding. And so, what we see is that the Ninevites believed God, that they repented from their sins, and God responded by relenting from His pending destruction of them. And then Jonah prays to God again in chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Let's read it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? (laughs) Jonah fled because he knew the character of God. Isn't that amazing? He he knew the character of God. Namely, he knew that God was steadfast in love. And, and when this steadfast love was extended to Jonah in the depths of the sea, man, it filled him with thanksgiving, right? It's like salvation is from the Lord. And then he becomes fish vomit. But when the same steadfast love that he experienced prior to even this, these episodes, but also experienced in the depths of the sea and in that fish's belly, when that same steadfast love is extended to the Ninevites, Jonah's filled with anger towards God. I knew this is the kind of God you were. I, I knew you were going to save someone like that. I knew this would happen. I, he wants them to die. There's no care for their souls. We'll see a little more about that next week. But Jonah became so angry with the Lord that he wants to die. And God just asked him, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God's steadfast love for us ought to enlarge our hearts for others, not shrink them. We we shouldn't become so focused on just the people that we think deserve the steadfast love of God that we totally ignore. I dare say hate at times the people who we think don't deserve the steadfast love of God. So what Jonah reveals is that he's all for the steadfast love of God as long as it's saving people that he thinks are worth saving. But when it extends to people that he thinks don't deserve to be saved, he gets angry with the Lord. Jonah thinks he's a better God than God. And so... What we see is that God's heart is for the whole world. If we want God to be harsh toward our enemies, then we're also saying that we think God ought to be harsh toward us. Surely we're not so self-righteous that we would think that it's a good thing for God to be harsh to bad people and we wouldn't be included in that.
what we know from Romans is that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What we know from our text is that we can be thankful, though, that God is gracious, that He's merciful, that He's slow to anger, He abounds in steadfast love, and He relents from disaster. A man once said that his religion is most Christian that saves a world rather than the kind that damns a man. So God was as merciful to Jonah as He was to Nineveh. It's not like Nineveh got special treatment. God was as merciful to them as He had been to Israel. And, and God has been as merciful to you as He has been to anyone else. And when we consider what lies behind our transformed hearts, namely the steadfast love of God, we ought to grow in compassion toward others, not less. God's steadfast love enlarges our hearts. With that in mind, I want to draw your attention to, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Matthew 9, 36-38, we read this episode with Jesus. It says there of Jesus that when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So He looks on the masses and He sees that they're harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd and He has compassion on them. And so He says to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now this is profound because Jesus is arguably the one person who could be contemptuous toward us because He's the perfect Son of God. Mankind has done nothing but rebel against His Father. Yet, He looks on the crowds, on the world, with compassion. And I just ask you kind of gently, at least I hope it's gently, can it be said of us that we pray earnestly for the salvation of Muslims, of adulterers, of abusers, of murderers, and gossips, and slanderers, and homosexuals, and those who watch a different news network than we do, and follow a different political name than we do? Can it be said of us that we're compassionate towards people? If these people anger us, whoever they may be, right? Insert whatever sin there you want to insert. But remember Ephesians 2 that we once were. But insert anything there. If any of these people anger you more than they drive you to compassion, then we must ask ourselves, do we do well to be angry with the Lord? How, how good is it for us? How loving is it making us? How is it helping us grow in faith? My observation would be that it's not. That it doesn't and it never will. It's, it's far better and far more life-giving to the world around you for us to become like Christ toward unbelievers than to emulate our favorite political personality. 
If your version of Christianity keeps you from loving lost sinners, loving one another even, then it isn't Christianity at all. Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus gives the world this way in which they can judge whether or not we're really His disciples. And He tells them to do so. But He also tells the disciples, you better be this because the world's going to be watching you. And Jesus tells His disciples in John chapter 13 that the world will know that you are My disciples by the way you love one another. Now the heart of Christians toward the world ought to be one of compassion because we are the recipients of a steadfast love from God. We we must consider others as greater than ourselves. Philippians 2 says that that's the mind that we now have in Christ Jesus. We have it in Christ Jesus, it says, because He gave up everything in heaven to become like us, but not just to become like us, to bear the weight of sin and God's wrath for us that we may be saved. He considered us greater than Himself to the point of death on a cross. And so He saves us from our sins by dying in our place. God's steadfast love transforms our hearts, yes, but it ought to also enlarge our hearts. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?